Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast, where you can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. This is our latest Last Week in AI episode in which you can get a quick digest of last week's AI news, as well as a bit of discussion between two or more AI researchers as to what we think about these news stories. To start things off, we'll hand it off to Daniel Bashir to summarize what happened in AI last week. But stick around after that, because we'll be back in just a few minutes to dive deeper into the stories and give our takes. Hello, this is Daniel Bashir here with our weekly news summary. This week, we'll look at AI for diagnosing COVID and modeling the world, self-driving, and using GPT-3 to write blog posts. The United States is heading into a scary winter with COVID-19 and the flu, and one of the persistent issues has been spread from asymptomatic COVID carriers. But as VentureBeat reports, researchers at MIT say they've developed an algorithm that can diagnose the disease by the sound of someone's cough, even if that person is asymptomatic. This application isn't a new idea, and such systems could exhibit bias when trained on imbalanced or unrepresentative datasets, but they could be a useful tool on the front lines of the pandemic. To create the model, the researchers used data from a website that allowed people to record a series of coughs and fill out a survey that asked about symptoms and whether they had COVID. There might be a lot of room for error in applying the actual model they built, but the idea could present a promising way forward. Our next story sounds pretty mathy, but could also be very important. Unless you studied physics or engineering, you probably don't have much reason to know about partial differential equations or PDEs. But they're a powerful category of math equations that can describe physical phenomena in the world from planetary orbits to climate to plate tectonics. Understanding them can help us design safe airplanes and predict seismic activity, but they are notoriously hard to solve. According to the MIT Technology Review, researchers at Caltech have introduced a new deep learning technique for solving PDEs that is not only more accurate than previous methods, but also faster and more generalizable. The AI field has taken a special interest in PDEs because of the need for vast computational power to solve them. If we can more easily solve these equations, we're in a better position to understand the world around us and our effect on it. We're well aware by now that self-driving is a difficult problem and that companies like Tesla can market their technology in a way that overhypes its abilities. We've also seen the consequences of self-driving's failure, such as a 2018 case when a self-driving Uber vehicle crashed and killed a pedestrian in Arizona. This has driven self-driving companies like Waymo to enter into agreements to work with policymakers and to release reports about their vehicle's performance. Waymo in particular has good reason to do this because it's been testing its self-driving cars in places like Arizona and recently made fully driverless rides available to the public through a program called Waymo One. According to VentureBeat, a recent Waymo report is worthy of concern. It details 18 accidents over a period of 20 months. The report is quite detailed and includes new safety methodologies, but VentureBeat claims these aren't likely to satisfy critics. Furthermore, Waymo didn't detail accidents earlier in the Waymo One program. Companies like Waymo might be making lots of progress in the self-driving space, but it seems it'll be a long time before there's much public trust in the technology. Over the past few months, we've seen plenty of impressive feats from OpenAI's massive language model, GPT-3. 
it can often write convincingly like a human, and news outlets like The Guardian have published articles written using GPT-3. One GPT-3 user, Vasily Shinkarenka, was able to use GPT-3 to create posts that hit the front page of Hacker News five times in three weeks. After a month of working with GPT-3, Vasily described his process of designing prompts for the model in order to use it for title generation and other aspects of writing his posts. Vasily believes that with GPT-3, OpenAI just broke the sub-4-minute mile record in NLP, and that in the coming decade, we'll have many more taking the same approach that OpenAI did. We'll have to wait and see if he's right. That's all for this week's news roundup. Stay tuned for a more in-depth discussion of recent events with Andre and Sharon. Thank you, Daniel, and welcome back, listeners. Now that you had that summary of last week's news, feel free to stick around for a bit of a laid-back discussion about these news between two AI researchers, including me. I am Andre Krakow, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. My research mostly focuses on learning algorithms for robotics and robotic manipulation, and that includes reinforcement learning and some computer vision. And with me is my co-host. I'm Sharon, a fourth year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. As well as medicine, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully, yes, that is of particular interest with COVID still looming. Still looming, as we should emphasize. And it shall be looming for a while, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we mentioned last week uh, that I had a deadline that I was working on, and yes. fortunately that passed, so now uh, we can be a bit actually laid back, or I don't know, I, I maybe wasn't fully, so this week I think it's truly a bit more of a relaxed week. I don't know, how about you, do you have any upcoming deadlines? I would say it's... Uh, I mean, it's not relaxed on the uh, political front, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna pretend the election didn't happen. I think okay. the purpose of this. Um, I listeners have had enough of that. That's true. That's true. Stick to that's very true. Um, I I have a CVPR coming up um, as a deadline, and uh, I think that's that's basically it. And that's coming up in a in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a couple of weeks. Yeah, so. Uh... Good luck with that. Hope it's all coming along. I know for me, it was, as usual, a mad scramble in the last few days, but we managed to make it. And now I just need to, you know, fine tune a few things and then start all over again with a new project. Right, exactly. All right, well, on to our usual uh, thing of discussing last week's AI news stories, starting with kind of a fun one we got. Uh, the Godfather of AI just trashed GPT-3 from futurism.com. This wasn't so much a news story. This was kind of just like a blog post covering a Facebook post by Yen LeCun, who is apparently the Godfather of AI, according to these stories. And basically, as the title implies, the story here is that Yen LeCun posts on Facebook criticizing GPT-3. And um, 
not saying it's you know un, un, unimpressive or bad, but what he did say was that some people have completely unrealistic expectations about what large-scale langu- language model- models about what large-scale language models such as GPT-3 can do. And in this post, he's saying that while they are pretty cool and they can do a lot of things, they aren't very good at any single application. So he said, as a question, answering system GPT-3 is not very good. Other approaches that are explicitly built to represent massive amount of knowledge in neural associated memories are better at it. Uh, better at it. There's also, as a dialogue system, isn't very good either, and so on. He basically said that um, while we have had progress in this, uh, you cannot apply it in all sorts of uh, places, including in healthcare, where there was some discussion that prompted this Facebook post showing that you can get very unreliable and, and quite flawed outputs from GPT-3 if you don't, uh, you know, be careful. So yeah, a bit of a spicy story maybe, because uh, there was, has been a lot of discussion of GPT-3 and how impressive it is and so on. Uh, what do you make of Yonakun's stake, Sharon? Do you, do you pretty much agree? Uh, I actually thought the uh, conversations that followed this were really interesting. For example, uh, Gary Marcus commented on this and said, finally, they agree with me, but it's taken forever. Or rather, Yann Kuhn agrees with me, finally. Uh, and he also cited kind of Jeffrey Hinton claiming that deep learning can solve everything, which is probably not true. Um and is probably just for spicy marketing there. Uh, and so I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, almost play, that, that, that side play of these uh, titans in AI kind of discussing uh, what is useful and what isn't and where AI can be dangerous. Uh, I think we still haven't been able to control AI in that way. Uh, it is very much trained on data that represents in GPT-3's case, all of the internet. And of course, most, I would say more of the internet has like toxicity than not, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, And that it is biased in the same ways that we humans are. Um, And it reflects society today as opposed to the society we want tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in this case, one uh, example of a harmful or bad application where you don't want the text to just be conditioned on all of the internet, uh, was uh, highlighted in a post by the company Nabla titled Dr. GPT-3 Hype or Reality. And so this is actually what inspired uh, Lacoon's uh, take here. And this post, Dr. GPT-3, showed that basically you cannot rely on GPT-3 to kind of help with... Um, answering questions regarding medicine or health. Uh, So for instance, um, it has trouble kind of booking things and answering questions about availability. It um, can't reliably answer things about what is your copay, uh, what is my copay for an x-ray versus what is my copay for an x-ray and an MRI together. It would say it's the same cost. And worst of all, there was an example where uh, in saying to GPT-3, uh, and this is over text, of course, uh, something like, hey, I feel very bad. I'm having suicidal thoughts. 
it could actually <laughs> encourage that sort of action, which is obviously the complete opposite of what you want. And that I think I saw quite a bit on Twitter and then saw as highlighted as a great example of GP3 not being usable in a sensitive kind of area where you want to be careful. And what was interesting is I, I saw that piece of text and what was interesting is that it didn't say, yes, you should kill yourself. It said, yes to, should I kill myself? Like when a person asks, should I kill myself? It would say yes. And yeah, it said, I think you should. Exactly. Yeah, I think you should. And it, it almost felt like it didn't understand the question exactly, right? It just knew how to answer the question in a grammatically correct way, which is basically how I think of GBD3 as a really powerful language model that's learned grammar, but not necessarily understanding. Um, I think that's definitely a step forward. And, and, and if we can even understand how it understands, let's say it does under, have understanding, then how do we control that and how do we make sure that it is uh, appropriate in some way? And I don't think that's obvious either. Exactly. I think it's very much an open area of research and something we should acknowledge is that GPT-3 is pretty new. It was a few months ago. It was released by OpenAI as kind of a new research uh, achievement. And some of these uh, properties of kind of fine-tuning it via a few examples to do specific applications Again, people have been experimenting for, with it for not too long. So these examples and Yana Kuhn's opinion, I think, do highlight that we shouldn't be sort of acting like we understand it and can use it in all sorts of ways. We still need to be careful and study it and, and as you say, basically figure out how to properly apply it. But for now, it's an exciting development, but not something that can do anything, right? Right. So speaking of trying to angle AI towards positive social good, uh, the next article is AI agreement to enhance environmental monitoring weather prediction, as well as uh, Mayo Clinic Google focus on AI effort for cancer care. And so these are two articles about uh, Google partnering up with two different organizations to tackle uh, both I guess, I suppose, climate prediction and climate science and environmentalism, as well as uh, healthcare, uh, especially in, in cancer. And so the first is with NOAA, uh, NOAA's Satellite and Information Service. Uh, and they've signed this uh, agreement with Google to es essentially explore how AI can be beneficial for enhancing NOAA's use of satellite and environmental data. And so satellite data, there's so much of it, like billions and billions uh, of tiles that you can think about. And I think AI could be very useful on this data, especially at different Zoom levels. There's just so much data there. Uh, and likewise, uh, Google also has uh, announced a joint initiative with the Mayo Clinic. Um, and this is focusing on researching how to apply, again, AI in, for something that is socially good. And here it is uh, uh, cancer care, uh, specifically radiation therapy planning. And uh, I'm excited to see these partnerships happen. This seems very positive uh, that they have these agreements in place. And I hope this actually does amount to something. I do know that the group within Google is growing for uh, working on AI and climate change. So that is, it's great to, to see this uh, actually formalize and Google be okay with that and 
perhaps put headcount towards it. And um, of course, Google Health has been uh, pushing forward a lot and having this joint initiative is is quite huge. And um, yeah, I actually wonder if I know the person at Mayo Clinic who's <laughs> leading uh, the charge with this initiative or not. I'm, I'm actually not sure, but I'm very excited to see it too. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's quite exciting to see these uh, partnerships. I think obviously these uh, institutes like, um, you know, the Satellite Information Service uh, Group or Mayo Clinic have a lot of expertise in their respective areas of environmental monitoring and variant prediction and uh, cancer care. And Google has a lot of expertise in machine learning and applying it to different problems. And besides just expertise, has a lot of infrastructure and the ability to deal with absurd amounts of data, as uh, you said. So yeah, it's neat to see these uh, additional partnerships. It's neat to see that hopefully Google's investments in AI will pay off in some ways, maybe for the public in terms of this uh, partnership with the government and maybe for our, you know, ability to detect and deal with cancer uh, down the line. So pretty cool stories and nice to see some actually, you know, beneficial applications of AI as opposed to, as we tend to talk a lot about facial recognition or deep fakes or other sort of nasty things. It's good to see that there's still uh, good new developments coming about. Right. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I fingers crossed. And in addition to talent and infrastructure, Google also has quite a bit of, uh, financial <laughs> backing and, and money to, to make some of this happen. Yeah, uh, exactly. And speaking of that, <laughs> we got our next story, which is titled inequality grows in AI researcher, uh, in AI research. This is from Axios. So uh, it's all about how uh, researchers at the Western University and Virginia Tech examined more than 170,000 papers uh, presented at, 70, uh, at 57 computer science conferences since 2012. And based on that, they found that, you know, uh, essentially a lot of the papers published were from elite universities. Uh, those ranked uh, either between 1 and 50 in the QS World University rankings. And those crowded out uh, researchers from mid-tier and lower-tier universities, according to these rankings. And also that researchers from large uh, tech firms increased uh, their foothold both by publishing papers and partnering with academic researchers. So maybe not surprising, but kind of a bit of a bad development. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess both you and I, Sharon, are at Stanford, so more of an elite top-tier university, and we see firsthand how there is a ton of activity and so many groups and students. But... Um, I do wonder about more mid-tier uh, universities. Uh, if we have trouble, you know, uh, competing with uh, Berkeley or, or these other places or Google, then uh, for places with less prestige, less uh, resources, I could definitely see how it is tough to move as fast. Uh, I don't know if you have any kind of opinions on this general idea. 
Yeah, I can definitely see this um, essentially uh, being a problem. I mean, we see it in a lot of places where the the concentration of, I mean, you even see it at Stanford where uh, I was talking to a student who was at Georgia Tech before and said, even there, like that's a pretty top university in tech. Uh, didn't have many opportunities, just like there was one path and you just followed it. And then when they got here to Stanford as a master's, there were just so many opportunities, like overwhelming. And it was just overwhelming what to do. Uh, there's so many all the time and so many doors that you could open. And so it was just, um, it's obvious that that is kind of, there is a lack of representation there and that perhaps there are voices that we could be listening to that are just not in that various organizations are crowding uh, these so-called elite or top tier places. Um, and I hope that we could democratize in general education a little bit more too, <laughs> especially as with COVID, I, I wonder if, yeah, I wonder how much, how much value, especially in the university sense, less so the, the, the tech, the tech firms sense, um, how much value the students are actually getting. Uh, from their education anyways. Yeah, yeah, that's fair, I think. And that's a whole other area, I suppose. Yeah, looking a bit more to statistics, I opened up a PDF. It's it's pretty interesting. Uh, so looking at the top 50 universities on average, right, publish 66 papers uh, per year per conference. Whereas the next uh, top 50, so 50 through 100, publish on average 35. And then the next 100, 100 through 200, publish 32 on average. And the 100 after that, after that publish 20. And yeah, there is a question of to what extent is this because of sort of the emphasis, maybe mid-tier and lower-tier universities do more teaching and basically have less uh, people doing research, less labs, uh, that could be part of it, but nevertheless, uh, I think it's it's kind of good to maybe have these statistics, and especially for uh, decision makers at let's say governmental grants, maybe they can take these into account and sort of help out to make the universities to make sure that uh, people have more equitable access to you know data, compute, generally resources to be able to do research. Right. And I think the resources part is actually quite big since, I mean, GPT-3 needs so, so many resources just to start, to start working with it. And um, a lot of these models just require so much compute. I remember just as we've been creating this GANS Coursera course, uh, this is the first time that there's a course that fully in a formal process is a first time Coursera has said, okay, we'll give you GPUs for every component of the course. It's the first time Coursera has done this. And it's crazy because um, as, as students get more into more and more advanced AI uh, areas, they will need that. And it was really hard to work within the constraints of the Coursera GPUs, um, like the, the allowed amounts. And so, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what's what's best there. Um, yeah, because that could be really hard. And uh, I also, yeah, I mean, we see that potentially there is that you know national research cloud coming out 
Um, but we'll see. I, I hope like Google will continue to essentially subsidize CoLab because apparently if you pay $10 a month, you get a V100 dedicated to your co- your notebook and that that's basically subsidizing it uh, there. Um, but yeah, uh, that is definitely a tricky, tricky problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a question of resources, as you say, and so it's not surprising that richer universities and big companies manage to publish more papers. I guess the question is, what should you do about it? And as you mentioned, one uh, suggestion has been actually promoted by Stanford, by the Stanford Human Centered AI Institute, in favor of developing a national research cloud so that kind of the playing field is more level. And yeah, I think hopefully such initiatives, such ideas keep being looked into because I think soon enough, maybe we will have this problem of not being able to compete with Google and Facebook and and have the same sort of issues. So definitely something that we as a community and as a research field need to reckon with. Right, right. Well, on to a more lighter topic. Our last article is how I used GPT-3 to hit Hacker News front page five times in three weeks. And so the title basically says it all. (laughs) It's a blog post by the person who did this. And I just want to read some of the the titles that uh, gained a lot of popularity and that were generated by uh, GPT-3. Uh, so one of them was a guide to difficult conversations, how to stop procrastinating by using the fog behavior model, the missing semester of CS education. I just, I just can't believe that these are it. Cause those are things that I can imagine would be clicked on a lot on hacker news. Uh, so I, I very much agree. Um, and I, I really find the fog behavior model part, the funniest cause it's so specific and yet it's so hacker news. I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, Andre. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty funny because this isn't the first time this happened, right? Uh, it, it's happened before we've seen with completely artificial posts uh, already hitting front page. And uh, also this week, we have a second kind of news story that came out in entrepreneur.com uh, titled, I asked AI to write this post for me. Here are the results. And again, it's about using GPT-3 to write a uh, post for um, this guy. And he yeah, then went on to explain how that uh, works. So I found it kind of funny to see these two happen uh, kind of on the same week and then following up on previous things we've seen on, again, generating posts and getting uploads. So um, in some ways, kind of, I think... It's not surprising, right? Because if you use data and target uh, GPT-3 towards generating sort of clickbaity titles that appeal to a certain audience, that's going to work. You're going to get upvotes. So it's not necessarily saying GPT-3 is impressive so much as showing how susceptible online communities are to being targeted in this way. And I guess... Maybe in the future, these sorts of upvote type platforms will need some sort of screening of content to make sure it's not just uh, looking for you know upvotes instead of having any substantial content. Maybe it means that we'll need more moderation. Right. And right. Yeah. I, 
that's pretty much. I mean, this this is in line with any tech that kind of exploits this attention phenomenon and just the human behavior aspect of oh my gosh that gives me so much dopamine let me keep doing it kind of thing and facebook is very much that way which is why i think we're actually seeing a lot of you know polarization echo chambers it's because like you're like wow that's a really spicy title let me click on it i really want that um and it's the same here and it just looks like well now there's a tool to easily do that and exploit that part of our brain um, even more so than Facebook because now anyone can do it. And so, um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. This is bad. Definitely. I feel like the general, it is generally bad that we have now found a way to very much exploit human, human, like various aspects of human nature that are not necessarily things that we would want in a productive society. Uh, and it's really hard to define what is best. So it's also really hard to steer this towards something that we think would be good, right? We just know that this is bad. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I don't know how to solve that problem. I'm, I think people are definitely looking into it. I've seen people start companies being like, we're starting the new social network. That's not toxic. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, honestly, that sounds worrisome too, uh, since uh, that sounds difficult. Uh, but I, I think a worthy, worthy attempt nonetheless, hopefully. And um, yeah, uh, so I think in, in that sense, it's probably bad that this is very exploitable. Yeah, I think, I mean, we already have information overload. There's already too many blog posts, too many articles, too much of everything. Now, on top of that, you have GPT-3 being able to add a ton of content and just auto-generate it, right? And in some cases, people will upload it and drown out the actual things written by people that have some meaning and then aren't just sort of vague nonsense. So that makes me a bit pessimistic for the near term. I think near term, we'll see a lot of exploits and a lot of sort of small hacks and small negative applications. And then maybe after that, we'll see sort of some solutions where, you know, uh, moderation and kind of checking for actual substantive content increases. And maybe, you know, eventually we will have tighter controls against clickbait and against sort of empty content once there is too much of it. But I think it's going to take a while. And uh, I'm looking forward to not seeing any more GPT-3 generated this hacker news, you know, third front page, whatever <laughs> stuff. But I, I'm guessing we'll see a few more in the next few months. Yeah, I can see that happening more. Um, I mean, I've already... I'm not, I'm cleansed of Hacker News now. So um, I don't, yeah, I, I don't even go on it anymore. You can avoid it. Yeah, yeah but I, I can uh, see people leaving it if it's going to be this kind of content too. I'm not sure. Maybe people like it. Like people on BuzzFeed love knowing what type of bread they are. So. Oh yeah. BuzzFeed is just going to be revolutionized. <laughs> revolutionized. That's beautiful. Oh my god. Beautiful and terrifying in a very boring way. Yeah. And uh, with that, we're gonna close out. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scana Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at scanatoday.com. 
subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show be sure, be sure to join next week, week.